Hey everyone, before we get started, I just wanted to thank you for listening to Spirited. I also wanted to let you know that from now on, Spirited will be dropping on Wednesdays. Please make sure to rate and review us wherever you listen. In today's polarized world, how do we identify and practice our core values? How can we bring our spiritual and ethical commitments into our lives? What might activism grounded in spirituality look like? I'm Dr. Simranjit Singh and the host of Spirited, a podcast about thinkers, leaders, and activists, and how they use their beliefs to navigate today's complicated world. Our guest today is Dr. Serene Jones, the president of Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York. She's the first woman president in the institution's 183 years of existence. I recently read Dr. Jones's new book, a spiritual memoir titled Call It Grace, Finding Meaning in an Uncomfortable World. I knew while reading it that I wanted to sit with her to learn more about her personal journey, especially after learning of her family's complicity in racism, white supremacy, and public lynchings in Oklahoma. We discussed all of these topics, and more, in a transparent and illuminating conversation. Tell me what's at the core of your being. What, what drives you? What makes you who you are? The fundamental confidence that I am loved by the divine and that all people are loved by the divine and the world is loved by the divine and everything is okay because of that. A sense of serenity and calm that sits there in that love. I feel myself at every moment even when I'm not thinking about it, the feeling is there that I exist in grace. Uh, that's the traditional word for uh, love that comes to you regardless of what you do in a particular moment or who you are. It is just the character, um, the deepest character of your being. Because I do think that the question of who you are at the core of your being, um, even when you're not conscious of it, is mapping all that you do and maps the space of the way your own mind and your heart and your imagination functions, how it, the world is perceived. It's just there. Serene Jones grew up in Oklahoma with her family. She's the eldest of three daughters. Her mother, Sarah Jones, was a licensed psychotherapist. Her father, Dr. Joe Robert Jones, was a graduate of Yale Divinity School and served as dean of the graduate seminary and president of Phillips University. When most Americans think about Oklahoma, love is probably not the first word. Progressivism is probably not the first word. And so I'm interested to know where, where does this feeling or this, this drive of yours come from? Well, it came from my family. And I think for most people, either the thing they have to get over or the thing that they're able to embrace, you know, comes from those early childhood years. And I grew up in Oklahoma in um, a progressive family that was an unusual part of a rather conservative larger family um, that were Christians, some of them evangelicals, many of them mainline religious Protestants. But it, that was just an affirmation that sat there in every everything we did, whether we were learning it in church or around the dinner table or simply in conversations that we had, that you are fundamentally loved. And it affected everything you did because in affirming uh, the character of grace that envelops you, um, you affirm it for everyone. So it changes the way you interact with the world and in deep ways affects your politics because 
Um, you have to look at everyone as wrapped in that love. So tell us a little bit about your own spiritual formation, your childhood in Oklahoma. Um, how did you come to be the person you are today? Yes, I am a child of the Oklahoma Plains. Uh, my family goes back there uh, five generations. Uh, my great-great-grandparents were part of the land run that opened the state, actually created eventually the state of Oklahoma. And because of that, I come from people for whom this sense of God's grace meant everything with respect to their capacity to survive initially um, in these uh, vast homesteads that were literally made of clay in terms of the ground that they were trying to till. Um, my grandmother was born in a sod house. Um, and until very recently in our family, that kind of rugged agrarian farm life, um, which is tough, um, was what my family did. And in the midst of all of that, you had a sense of nature that was very profound because you were connected to the land in what you did every day with all of your energies. Um, and you had a sense of nature as both beautiful and fruitful, but also harsh um, because a tornado could wipe out your house, drought could kill the crops, and everything hang on, hung on that. So um, the land continues to be important to me Mm. And do you think that changes over time? It does change over time as you grow and learn more. And uh, for me, those plot lines become more complicated as I have grown. I've learned more about the world and my family's place in it and both the hardships that they faced um, as homesteaders in a place like Oklahoma, um, how diverse that history is in which I was formed but one of the things that I've also discovered is, uh, you know, the history of um, racism and white supremacy in the white Protestants that were part of that whole settling of the area that eventually became Oklahoma. And so I've had to wrestle with both the, the harshness of it, but my family's own participation in, um, to use Christian language, the sins that were perpetrated in that same space. In her book, Dr. Jones talks about uncovering racism in her family history. I was very lucky to have the affirmation of my family, but um, the larger family within which I exist and this story exists, I have not had a chance to explore the broader ripples of it. Um, I could talk about it here, but the the most difficult story um, of the many family stories that I tell is my own discovery um, when I'm a professor uh, teaching theology um, at Yale Divinity School, uh, listening to a lecture by um, a candidate for a position in African American studies. Um, and as the backdrop to his lecture, he had uh, pictures of postcards of lynchings. And I had seen some of them before, but um, much to my shock, in the middle of his lecture, a postcard dropped that in the picture was the size of the whole wall of the classroom, and it was of a young woman who had been lynched. And at the bottom of the postcard, it said, Okima, Oklahoma, 1911. Mm -hmm. And in Okima, Oklahoma, 1911, my Jones family uh, made up most of the town. And I had never heard... Um, that this lynching of Laura Nelson and her son 
had ever happened, uh, much less it was impossible to avoid the reality that um, if my family had not participated in it, we would have told the story. Mm. So the silence is in many ways part of the way that history is reckoned with in the context of white supremacy. Before we tell this story, we want to offer a warning about the next portion of our conversation, where we recognize the history of violence against Black women and children. If you'd like to skip over this portion, you can visit our episode description on your device for more information. After the Civil War, acts of violence against Black people in the South rose dramatically. Intimidation, beatings, and murder became normal during this period of time. On May 2nd, 1911, in Okfiskey, Oklahoma, Sheriff George Loney went with three men to search the house of Laura Nelson and her family. Austin Nelson, Laura's husband, was suspected of having stolen a cow. Austin Nelson admitted to the crime as the meat was found during the search. The gun went off and a bullet hit the sheriff's leg. He died from the wound. Austin Nelson went to jail. Laura and LD were arrested and put in the Okfiskey County Jail to await trial. A mob carried them to the Canadian River Bridge, where they were both lynched. George Henry Farnham took photos that then became a popular postcard. And why, why does it feel important to you to bring up that story? I mean, it's, it's a painful one. You know, some might say that this is, you're airing your family's dirty laundry and soiling their name. Uh, what, is it, what is it about you as a person that says, Serene, this is an important story to tell? It's absolutely crucial that um, in white communities in the United States that we stop acting like uh, the legacy of Native American genocide and slavery and the, the awful sins of the past that still live with us are something that because our family did things two generations ago, we can hold it at arm's length mm. and say they did that, but that's not me. Um, it's time that we actually tell those stories and admit our own participation in those legacies because of those lynchings um, in Oklahoma, uh, very important actions were taken with respect to who owned the land. Mm who uh, eventually was able to accumulate money, who got mineral rights and oil rights, um, which families survived over the long run, and which families' legacies completely disappeared. So here I am today in 2019, an heir of that act. Mm. And until we stop being um, ashamed in a way that says, I'm so ashamed I'm not going to talk about it and act as if it didn't happen, um, we should feel shame, but it's part of the country coming to grips with who we are. And until we can take that step and say that this history is not just about um, building museums that recognize the history of lynching, uh, we need a museum that tells the story of the lynchers mm. and how they became lynchers. What happened to white people that could make them into these um, brutal, heartless, um, desperate and, and cruel souls that they became. So how does this comport with, you know, at, at the beginning of our conversation, you said the one thing you know about yourself is that you're loved and that you believe in love and that everyone is loved. So how does something like this fit in with this kind of story? Oh, they fit very closely. Because I think one of the things that happens 
particularly in religious communities, but it can happen in any community. If if you don't have a, a profound sense of your um, fundamental belovedness, then you live a life in which you're always worried that somehow you're going to do something that will get you rejected from the realm of divinity, that you will be... Um, you know, cast out into the outer darkness because of some ethical or moral failure. But having that fundamental sense of grace that's there no matter what actually empowers you to say, okay, I can tell this, um, you know, my uh, God's love for me is not at risk in me uh, actually telling the truth and wrestling with these things that are true about me and my family. It's very freeing in a sense to deal with the truth and the harshness of, of oppression and injustice. So one of the things I noticed in your book is that you're talking quite a bit about grace and sin and how these two concepts interplay with one another. Now, for someone like me, who's not a Christian, those concepts are, are somewhat unfamiliar to me. And how do they shape the way that you view the world? Yeah, they're probably the two most basic concepts of uh, the uh, Calvinist Protestantism that I was raised with. And um, the first affirmation of that faith is that God creates the whole world and loves the world. And that's the fundamental disposition of God towards all that exists. Um, and then the second claim is for reasons mysterious uh, and often rooted in pride and greed, um, as creatures of God, we turn from that love and we do massively destructive things to ourselves and to the world around us. Um, and sin names that. And I, in working in predominantly Christian communities, um, feel that people have become so afraid of talking about, quote, sin, because unfortunately it's been equated over time with sexual deeds that are devious or bad in any way. Um, whereas in, really in the Christian tradition, it refers to all of the ways in which we act destructively. And it can refer, importantly, to whole social systems. We need to talk about the history of chattel slavery as sin, as sin in a, in a forceful and uh, humongous measure. Um, that kind of language makes it not just a political issue, but a moral and ethical issue that has to do with our very existence as human beings. You, you you have an openness and a and to recognize where you're falling short and how you'd like to move forward. Can you can you talk a little bit about that and you know give us an example of, of how that might have manifested itself? It, yes, it's actually at the core of this notion of sin and grace, really is grace and sin, um, is this impulse towards in the context of knowing you're loved, with insistence recognizing that you are sinful um, in the sense that you yourself um, harm and harm others, harm yourself in ways that you oftentimes don't even know you're doing, but also you live in a sinful, broken world in that the structures of the world, the structures of injustice and oppression affect you. They are inside of you, not just outside of you. And if you just recognize that as a fact about yourself, it opens you to a way of living that insists that you're always looking at your own implication in the broken structures of the world in which you live. I mean, that's just reality. 
And it empowers you to be able to look at that reality because you're forced to constantly accept that this is there. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've had a very similar personal experience, which is something you said before really struck me. Um, once you're able to accept that as reality, it's it's liberating because you're able to then say, everyone is like this. I don't have to feel ashamed that I've been conditioned in this way. This is this is just who we all are. And now let's let's do better, right? Yeah, yeah. And until we can get to that place collectively, we're able to say, this is who we are. We've done horrible things, but we have to collectively begin to address them. But you can't get to the step of addressing them until our hearts and our minds are convicted that we are part of that thing that we are fixing. It's very liberating, yes. That's a wonderful word to to put there because you're never, you get rid of the notion that somehow life is about achieving perfection because you're never going to get there to perfection, which frees you to actually work for liberation. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I think in the early portion of your book, you talk a little bit about this idea of, of universal redemption. You know, everyone is loved, everyone is saved, and how thinking of the world in that way and approaching the world in that way completely changes your orientation to to how you interact with people on an everyday basis. Yes, in the United States, we have turned the notion of salvation into a weapon. And so... Uh, large sections of the Christian community look at people determining um, first whether or not they are saved, which is the absolute wrong question to ask. And it's a, it's a very destructive perspective to have. And in, in my tradition, the affirmation is everyone is saved. There's no question about it. We're saved by virtue of the fact that we even exist. And so let's just take that off the table and get on with it, uh, which is get on with uh, living in grace and wrestling with our sin. You're not walking around trying to figure out, you know, who's going to climb the ladder to heaven or not, Mm. which is a very uh, um, ultimately boring, but in the immediate (laughs) moment, destructive thing to obsess about. But it's also very radical to say that we're all saved in in the context of present-day Christianity in the United States. Right. Which, in the Christian tradition, it's not a radical thing to say at all. It's been there for a long time. Hmm. What what does it look like to get on with it for you? I mean, in the last few stages of your life, you you know, you talk in your book about various challenges, divorce, parenthood. And <laughs> I'm there right now, so I, I feel you. <laughs> um, and, and becoming the first female president of Union Theological Seminary, the historic seminary in New York. And so um, what what has it meant for you to sort of grapple with, with these challenges um, across these various life stages for you? Yeah, in the book, I do go through all of the the places where all of us fall down. That was part of the empowering moment in the book for me is, um, or, you know, writing, I, I write uh, a long section about the bombing of the Murrah Building in Oklahoma City, um, which I think is pertinence for so much, uh, for understanding and reckoning with all of the violence that's happening in our nation and around the world today. But also, though that can't sep- be separated by personal things like divorce and the feeling of failure that you have when you go into a marriage believing you can make it work and believing it's forever, um, especially when you come from a religious community that affirms this, and then you discover you can't do it. Um, you can't sustain it. And the kind of um, sort of interior collapse that comes yeah. when you reckon with your own failure and the failure of 
the institution you had invested so much in. And that's, again, where grace becomes very important because um, in that context, I had to reckon with uh, the reality of God's sustaining love, which is more deep than the covenant of marriage, and that um, I had to accept forgiveness, um, not in the sense that I needed to be forgiven for something bad I had done, but just a sort of grand notion of forgiveness which says to us all, uh, you have a, a future and a life and step into that knowing that you're loved. Accept the love that's there and get on with it. You're not destined to live in a prison of, of, of your own conceptions of whatever your wrongdoings might have been. So it's, again, freeing. I write about parenthood and uh, we all know if you don't know how to forgive yourself constantly, uh, <laughs> parenthood becomes impossible. And again, that's where grace and grace and sin. Hmm. Um, when you have to believe your own self is loved and your your children are beloved, uh, regardless, hmm. um, that allows you the space to freely wrestle with what it means to try to raise them, and also, in my own experience, to have them raise you. Hmm. Um, and so to try to be honest about that and try to name the sins and yet at the same time understand what the mercy of God looks like, how mercy heals. I mean, I think those, the two most, well, there, there was a lot of pain in your book. <laughs> and um, Pain in life, I mean, honestly. <laughs> right. Who's I, gotten through it without uh, some series of the things that I write about? Right. Yeah. So tell us in in a, in a moment of such pain, how are you able to see grace? I think so many people in this country and around the world are feeling pain right now. I mean, as you're saying, we all feel pain. We don't always know or we don't always see grace. Where, where should we be looking? Well, first, and this is where the sin part of sin and grace comes in, first you have to recognize the pain um, and you have to embrace it for what it is, um, not be afraid of it, not live in the la-la land of um, supposing that if you're a spiritual or faithful person, you're supposed to be happy all the time. Mm. Um, I think the despair that's so prevalent in our nation right now lives inside of me too. Um, but it's in, not until you admit that despair that you can actually situate it in the context of a grace that says... Um, Yes, that pain is real, and the breaking of lives that is happening is real, and all of it is surrounded by the love of God. Feeling and notion to describe, but the, the language I use for it is that our ultimate destiny is love. Hmm. And so at the end of the day, the final word about all this big mess that we're in is love, and that's already been decided. But that ultimate destiny sort of takes you into a realm. And I'm not talking about heaven. I'm talking about the sort of ultimate valuing that you feel about reality is a positive, affirming value called love. Mm. Which then says, okay, this pain is excruciating. Um, we need to get busy um, working against the forces that are breaking our spirits and our bodies. Um, but we can do so with a sense of 
of hope that comes not from the notion that tomorrow we're going to fix it, but hope that bubbles up from that core belief that it is finally all loved. Mm. And that sense of hope that comes from sort of below and before, and it's not just about what the future holds, it's about how you exist in the world. Hope as a form of existence, not as a uh, destiny that you imagine is going to happen, you know, six months from now, 12 years from now, two centuries from now. It's about the present moment and the hope that one has in that mm. love. So I'm, I'm hearing this thread come through um, in our conversation that, that that perfection, the pursuit of perfection is actually quite dangerous. That, you know, if, if you're seeking perfection in your life um, in a moment of pain, you're not going to get there and it's just going to produce more pain. And if you're seeking yeah. per perfection as the end result of um, some sort of salvation, you're never going to get there and you'll mm -hmm. never be satisfied, right? Right. Yeah, I don't know. And if you if you if your response to the the despair and the destruction we see around us right now is but the belief that somehow if we did the right thing in this moment it would all become perfect and that I could do individually the perfect thing right now to fix mm. it all or even fix myself you're sort of relieved of that because that will make you uh, will shut you down and make you small and also make you mean. Mm. Um, it's a capaciousness that we need that opens us in love to what is happening around us. What, what you're describing reminded me of a teaching from, from one of the Sikh gurus who, as he was being tortured, he's, he's remembered to have said, uh, meaning, oh God, your, your will is so sweet to me. And, and the understanding is that it, it wasn't that he didn't feel pain. He did. Um, but he, in that moment, still felt the love. And so it allows you to almost almost transcend the love, knowing that it exists and feeling it, but, but in a very similar way of what you're describing yeah. as grace. Yeah, it's not, right, it's not that uh, in the story that, that you just told the saying, he's not saying there is no pain, mm. and he's not saying the pain is fine. He's just saying that pain viewed in the context of the larger love in which I exist, I'm affirming the sweetness of the love. Mm. It's a very powerful but counterintuitive way to think about um, pain and suffering. Mm. And I would never want to celebrate suffering because suffering, I don't think, is in and of itself uh, a positive thing. It doesn't produce any kind of special spiritual insight. Um, but we do all suffer in various ways. And so it's the question of, of how you're going to um, be in the space of your suffering not to glorify it, but to um, understand your own life in a bigger story. Mm. So, so how do you talk to your daughter about these ideas, <laughs> assuming she's interested? Well, that's a big assumption. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, I guess, I guess the question is, what, what value do you think this perspective has to offer the world today? As a minister and a seminary president and a theologian, mm. um, it's always sort of like awkward to admit that by the time she was seven, my daughter started refusing to go to church or to have anything <laughs> to do with religion. But I think that's what she's supposed to do. Yes, I know. She's supposed to do that, especially given how she was raised. And she's still um, not a officially religious person. But as I watch her move into the world as an adult and the decisions she's making about what to do with her life, 
I see uh, because of how we've lived and the affirmations that run through everything that happens in our home life. I think she does have that confidence that she's loved mm. and um, has the ability to not be afraid of suffering and pain. Um, she uh, is um, working very hard in reforming the criminal justice system mm. and is in the thick of it. And I don't know if she could do that kind of work in a sustained way if she didn't have that sort of strength that comes from the yes, mm. you are loved, and the, the power that comes from the no, this is not just. Mm. I mean, so what you're talking about, it's you use the words theology and grace and mm -hmm. sin, but they're not, the ideas aren't specific to Christianity or even, even to religion, right? It seems like it, yeah, these are right. universal ideas that could apply to mm -hmm. anyone and everyone. Yes, I, I think we all, you know, grab for language to describe these realities. And so our particular religious traditions give us ways to talk about them. But if they're going to have any kind of grip on us culturally and individually, they have to have existential grip, which means they have to make fundamental sense of our everyday experience of life. And I think this notion of the, of the divine yes to everything and the no to the brokenness and how those work together um, is, a, is universal. Mm. And how we negotiate that as human beings, because you know, to be a human being is to, is to um, struggle with the mess of it all. Mm. Um, and if one is on a spiritual journey to find uh, the yes in the mess. Yeah, and one of the things, and this is the last, the last thing I'll say is, is one of the things I think um, you do beautifully in your book in, in a way that, you know, most people, in a way that I haven't seen done very often, um, is that you, is that you model that you, you sort of share your life and your personal struggles, um, and, and you're open and vulnerable in a way that allows people to see themselves within your story. Yeah, and I don't wrap it all up at the end by putting a big bow on saying, look, I'm such a virtuous Christian and everything <laughs> has worked out perfectly just because I had faith because that's actually not true. And telling those kinds of religious stories have really negative consequences for people's lives because they keep feeling like, well, I can't possibly be a spiritually significant or deep person if my life isn't perfect again or neatly tied up. But none of it is neatly tied up. And in the end, there's more questions than there are answers. Full answers never come. But if you can find the beauty of those questions and, and the fundamentals that undergird them, then you have the capacity to, again, live in, in the torturous and beautiful uh, world in which we find ourselves with integrity. I want to thank Dr. Serene Jones for being here and for sharing her personal experiences and being so open about stories that are typically so private and secretive. She's one of the world's most prominent scholars of religion, and she has a unique ability to connect her vast body of knowledge and wisdom in a way that feels deeply human and deeply illuminative. Her journey of self-introspection models for us what it might look like to investigate our own internalized supremacies. And she also demonstrates the power and value of doing so. I'm grateful to Dr. Jones for taking the time out to chat with us and share with us what she's learned and gained over the years. Thank you to our producers, Cynthia Pimentel, Edie Allard, and the rest of the team at Wonder Media Network, and the Venley team for their support. Shout to my brother Rajuju for the theme music, and thanks to all y'all for listening. 
please subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Satsrik all and talk to y'all later. Hey, before we go, let me tell you about this other podcast. What do Riz Ahmed, Jamie Lee Curtis, Tig Notaro, Victoria Beckham, Hozier, and Reza Aslan all have in common? They're all guests this season on the all-new podcast from Lemonada Media, As Me with Sinead. Sinead is an activist, academic, TED talker, and Vogue cover model, and the first ever little person to be dressed by Gucci for the Met Ball. Sinead helps us understand what it's like to walk in someone else's shoes by talking about what it's like to be them. Did you know that Victoria Beckham was bullied as a child? Or that Riz Ahmed suffers from imposter syndrome? I didn't. Every chat is fascinating. Subscribe now to As Me with Sinead wherever you get your podcasts.